Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I am good, I'm recovering well. We obviously did not record for the past couple of weeks. For a bit of context for our listeners, I got my deviated septum fixed. (laughs) You're going to have to explain what that is again. So basically the cartilage in your nose should always be like dead center. Mine was very curved to the left. Obviously nothing actually detrimental about it, but it turned out I could get it fixed on my health insurance. So boom, boom in this climate. (laughs) Come on, I'm going to do that. And so I have to say, I've never had surgery before. I've never been under anesthetic in case my mom's listening to this. I've also never done drugs. So I was a bit nervous, but actually... God, the recovery was disgusting. It was so gruesome. But the actual process of going into a private hospital and getting some fentanyl, getting some morphine (laughs) was really enjoyable. (laughs) But how long were you there? Because I remember when I donated my bone marrow, I did it at the London Clinic, which is very nice. Mm. And it's literally like being in a hotel. Jules, it is literally like being in a hotel. They came around and they took my lunch order Mm -hmm. and then they came back and they were like, you might be here for dinner too. And I was like, yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. And then (laughs) I gave them my dinner order and then they were like, do you want some tea? And I was like, yeah, I'd love some tea. And then they went, do you want cake? Do you want biscuits? Yes. And then I said, oh, it's actually starting to hurt a bit. Could I get a bit more morphine? And they went, yes, you can have a bit more morphine. But you need morphine for that type of procedure. Well, I went under general anaesthetic. You can get it done under local, but they said that my nose was very blocked on the left-hand side. I was in a room on my own. I had my own nice ensuite. I was watching TV. I must have watched about six movies. Like I was conked for a lot of the day because I kept like falling asleep and waking back up again. But I literally said to my nurse, I was like, I feel like I'm on holiday. I'm having such a nice time. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to leave. She was like, I'm really sorry. Like, once it gets to 7 p.m., I think you probably will have to go home. I was like, if they came now and they were like, we're going to keep you overnight, I wouldn't even be worried. Yeah. I would be like, why are they keeping me overnight? I'd be like, okay, who should I give my breakfast order to? Yeah. No, that's how it was when I donated my bone marrow, but I wasn't there for long. I just stayed over one night to prep for it. And I was under general anesthetic as well. And then... Maybe I stayed another night and then I went home. I can't remember. It was so long ago, but it was definitely comfortable. That's a heavy duty procedure though, donating bone marrow. Yeah. And the recovery is really hard for that. I didn't know you'd done that before. Oh no, for me it was, it was fine. Really? That's so interesting. Yeah, I was okay. They were like, yeah, stay at home for a week, but I had no issues. Like I, I bounced back really quickly. That's so funny. A friend of mine did it in like really... Like it knocked him for six. So that's so interesting. Yeah, I think everyone just reacts differently. I'm so lucky that like for me, it was just like a non-factor. Like, yeah, one day I needed some rest, but I was just like chilling. That's mad. And I will say like, obviously everyone who listens to the podcast knows like Jules and I are very left-leaning. We're very, you know, pro NHS. We're 100%. Earlier this year, though, my my husband had had an operation to remove a tumour from his tongue um, back in February, which feels like it was much longer ago because of lockdown. But he had that operation on the NHS. And, you know, he had no sooner woken up than they were like, we need the bed. Like, thank you so much. 
take mm. care we'll touch base with you in a week which at the time we were just like okay cool thank you like literally got a taxi home but when you wake up and someone's like here's your tea would you like some more biscuits do you need some I know more? but it's not fair to compare it to the NHS it's because... not fair to compare it it's more yeah. that I hadn't realized that that life was open I hadn't realized that that was an option I had only oh, okay. known the <laughs> NHS life do you know what I mean and I'm just like oh my god people are having <laughs> oh what? yeah yeah people are living their best lives people I mean if you were pregnant and you were doing it that way you check in a week in advance oh yeah why would you yeah. not yeah for sure obviously it is definitely it's like how the other half live yes because they're not even thinking about like oh I need to get this covered by my insurance it's just like how they live oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's not their work insurance that's covering that for them um <laughs> And when it comes to your bone marrow, Anthony Nolan Trust mm. cover all of that for you, right? Mm. Because you are doing such a big thing. And when I did it, there was basically a drive at my university. Okay. For donors, because the African Caribbean Leukemia Trust did a drive. Mm-hmm. And then I signed up. And then literally a year later, they were like, mm. you're a match. And they were trying to find me at my old address and then eventually tracked me down. So I don't know how long they were looking for because the statistics around black and Asian donors is really low. So the Mm. last I looked, if you were like black or Asian and needed a donor, you had a one in a hundred thousand chance. Oh, wow. And apparently if you're white, it's like one in four. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I did know that it was easier if you were white. I had no idea that proportionally it was like that ridiculous. Oh, it's insane. And so mm-hmm. then they're like, oh, you're a, you're a match. And then my mom was like, oh, don't trust the hospital. Don't want you to do it. <laughs> I was like, well, if it was me and I needed a donor, like you would be praying every day yeah. that somebody does this, right? So then I did it. But then it's crazy how now a friend of mine, he just donated okay. his bone marrow. So it's like, yeah, I, I definitely think that they need donors from ethnic minority backgrounds in the UK. They need like a PR push, don't they? Really? like Yeah, it's really tough. But at least I got to experience how the other half lived. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> I was thinking, because I, I had a week off work. I was very naive about how gruesome the recovery would be. And I will obviously say as well, what you did was much more altruistic than what I did. I just wanted to breathe through both sides of my nose. Um, but I got a week off work, which I actually ended up being so grateful for because, as I said, recovery was revolting. But there's something very nice about coming to the end of a week long recovery on sick leave and being like, I didn't even use any annual leave. Mm. <laughs> I might have an operation a year. You don't need an operation. You just need to go to your GP and ask for a sick note. <laughs> yeah. Literally, my colleagues are disappearing, and I'm like, okay, what's going on here? <laughs> go to the GP, and they're too stressed out, and they get a week off. <laughs> if you don't need to have surgery, don't worry. Yeah, but do you get to come home with? I've, I've, I'm on coding now. I'm not on coding now, obviously, because I'm having a glass of red wine while we're recording this podcast. So I don't want to be slurring my words. But I have started to look forward to my pre bedtime coding. <laughs> Okay, you need to watch out because that pill life. No, no, that pill life, it's it's not cute. If you get addicted, it's not good. I know. Well, I've been on codeine once before. I had a bad hip injury years ago. And actually, it's funny because I'm on 10 milligrams of codeine now. I was on 30 milligrams of codeine. And you know when you just think, 
how was I even? I was working in retail. I was working in Victoria <laughs> at the time. I'm five pint. Literally out of my mind on codeine, just serving Swedish tourists who were the yeah. only people who ever shopped in Victoria's Secret on Bond Street. <laughs> but I think they've reduced it now. I think legally what you can prescribe is different. Oh, I mean, that would make sense. <laughs> Yeah, because apparently there's a lot going on in the UK with people getting addicted to pills. I did want your point of view on the, um, you know, it was so, so, so funny. I found the whole like Kim Kardashian's birthday thing hilarious. I know you were like her number one fan. Do you know what? Sometimes I think she makes it very hard for me. Oh, she makes it super hard for you. So, A. So hard for me. I'm like, I'm thinking of writing a letter just like Kim. Some of us are really out here just trying to defend you and you make it impossible no it was so tone deaf wasn't it it was absolutely tragic I think if you want to go to a private island with your mates during a pandemic that's completely fine Mm. but you don't necessarily need to advertise it it was a bit weird you literally don't need to say a word yeah just do your thing live your life but then I did find the hologram thing a bit weird but I don't know what you thought about that now I touch wood I haven't lost a parent up until this point in my life. So I can't speak to it in that regard. I saw a lot of people say how moving that they thought it was. If, hypothetically, I had lost a parent, and if my husband did that for me, I can imagine that I would be moved, but, and I think the but is important, if then my husband Charles got the hologram of my dead dad to say, you married a genius. You married a very, very genius, the biggest genius in the world, Charles Salisbury. I feel like I would be like, that was so unnecessary for you to include that. I yeah. would have left that bit out about yourself because my dad would never say that. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. Obviously, I don't know Rob Kardashian, right? And rest in peace. But it was very like, it was like a press release. Yeah. It was like, so it's not the hologram itself, do you? That doesn't really bother me. But the speech was so weird. It was like, I'm just so proud of all of your successful businesses. Yeah, so weird, isn't it? It was so weird. And then it was like, oh, and continuing my legacy to be a lawyer. It just felt like such a press release that you would think, let's say, you would think there would be some, and maybe there was something in there because we only thought they shared online, mm. but you would think it would be more intimate. It would be more something special. 100%. And I think that that is probably like the issue with doing something like that, because I know that when I, when I have lost people in my life, I've always dreamed very vividly of them afterwards and whatever I've dreamt of them saying, say when my grandma passed away, I remember having a very vivid dream of us being in her old home in Kilkee in Ireland. And she was very like pragmatic about the whole thing. She was like, you know, you can let me go. I'm fine. I'm I'm happy. I'm safe. And so it's like, if I did a hologram of her saying that, as soon as it became, you know, quote unquote real, it would be like... She would never say something like that. She would never speak to me like that. I don't think she'd ever say. So some things are sacrosanct. Some things should just be kept sacred. And as you said, like maybe kept private. Maybe they did keep those things private. But also if I knew my grandma and I can dream of her saying things and then be like in real life, oh, no, that would never happen. My husband, who's never met my father, who died years before I even met my husband, there's no, you have no context of imagining what he would 
ever say in a situation. Yeah, true. So it just feels a bit like, did you need to guess? Yeah, it just felt like their assistant wrote it, basically. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God, I've got this amazing idea. We're going to go to this island and I'm going to get a hologram of Rob Kardashian. I know that she would love it. Cool. Send me the speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, bro. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Send me the topics you'd like discussed and I'm going to build a speech around them. It's what I would write. As somebody who's just an, a stranger that reads the press, I know that Kim is super proud of her businesses. I know mm-hmm. that she's she's becoming a lawyer in her dad to, to follow on his legacy. And I just felt, it just felt a bit sort of lame, but... Whatever. I think that I would get a shock seeing the the physical image of my father in in a hologram. Like I think that that would be the bit that would drive me to emotion. Or the, seeing that uh, seeing a hologram of of anyone that I'd lost like completely unexpectedly. But I feel like in the moment you get so caught up in the oh my god, like look that that's that's them. And yeah. then afterwards you'd be sitting at home and be like, I wonder why he said that genius thing. <laughs> you wouldn't be able to stop being like that didn't even really it's just nothing no way I wonder why you said that thing about my businesses just, do you know you wouldn't be able to help but pick it apart and be like oh in the cold light of day actually that was absolutely cringe also as you've said about like even sharing the the trip on social media and being like oh we all went away to an island People start to rip that apart straight away, which I think they're absolutely entitled to do. I couldn't share a hologram of my deceased family member and then have someone to go, that looks fucking lame. And then I have to know, I have to see it through the eyes of that person on Twitter who's been, (laughs) oh God, that looks shit. That looks. They did it. They did it for the gram. That's the thing. So I think that they know that all of this stuff keeps them relevant. Uh, they did it for the gram they thought oh what would get the public going let's do this and that's why I say what they shared was like a a press release it wasn't like an intimate Mm. nothing intimate about it but I think for me lately especially with us having the second lockdown here I've started to get very worried about like the long-term effects of Mm. COVID and like people's unemployment yeah I'm like society's gonna really be people are gonna have it really hard oh for sure I, you know, obviously I've mentioned on the podcast before my my husband's a hairdresser, so he's out of work now for another Mm. four weeks. And we are in a fortunate position where financially we are okay, but it really tells you a lot about, you know, people keep voting for this Tory government. And the fact is the Tory government does not care about people like you and I. And Mm. I think that, you know, I I earn a good salary, I work in a good industry, my job has been safe, but geez, is there anything more clear that the people who vote for a Tory government because they don't want to pay higher taxes, guess what, when it comes down to it, you are one accident away from a welfare state. And I've said that before in this podcast. And look Mm. at all of the people now who are voting, who have been voting Tory because Labour was going to raise your taxes. Do you think that you would have the lack of protection that you have under a Tory government? Because... My husband hasn't seen a single government payout this year. So not no no furlough, no furlough because he's self-employed. Oof, exactly. It's uh, I'm absolutely raging, um, and we have a special guest, guy. So I'm not going to rant too long. But what really for me pushed me over the edge was the um, the free school meals. Oh God! Situation. 
So that has completely pushed me over the edge. Um, but I'm not a Tory voter anyway. Yeah. So I had no parts to play in it. Um, <laughs> but I'm like, mate, this government is complete trash. But then unfortunately, Labour are not doing a great job. What no. has just happened with Jeremy Corbyn for me mm-hmm. is, you know, I'm really questioning Keir Starmer now and kind of what his vision and what his goals are, especially us being in a pandemic and then rather than being a strong opposition and kind of fighting the shit policies from the Tory party, they're basically focusing on trying to distance themselves from Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't think this is a strategy to win, right? I I don't think things will change (laughs) anytime soon because it's a struggle now to even vote for Labour now. So it's... um... And this is the issue with the two-party country because Mm. you've got what? The Lib Dems who are the yellow Tories. And as you said, we have got a guest this evening. So I feel like this is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the the later version of Jules and Phoebe where we just absolutely rant about UK politics, but you all know what you're tuning in for when. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we haven't recorded for two weeks. I did want to discuss it, but yeah, just try and stay safe. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy time. I have a lot of empathy, you know, for what's going on and hopefully we can just make it through. Yeah, and try and stay sane as well. You know, reach out. I think that this is... I said to my husband last night, this year feels like it's been a dream. It can't be real that we all just stayed home for eight months, seven months. Yeah, crazy. It's bizarre. Yeah. But anyway, like you said, we've got a great guest this evening. We have Erin Darcy joining us. Erin is a mother, a writer, an activist, an artist, and the founder of the grassroots movement In Her Shoes, which had such a seismic effect on me personally, but also was a huge influence on the Irish abortion referendum back in 2018. So Erin, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be talking to you about this. I'm excited as well, because Phoebe and I were colleagues in 2018, when the Irish referendum was happening, and it was something she was so passionate about. So for me, having the opportunity to discuss this topic with you is really exciting because I know how much it means to her and I know how important it is in general. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, that's really lovely. So I guess for a bit of context around that, and I think I've touched on this on the podcast before, I was part of the London Irish Abortion Rights Committee. And for those of you who don't know, up until 2018, abortion was very much so restricted in Ireland. I've touched on this before, but I think that that in large part plays into the fact that Ireland as a Catholic country had its constitution very much so written by the Catholic Church. So you had a restriction on things like abortion, divorce, contraception. I believe marital rape wasn't even acknowledged as an issue until the mid-1990s. There are so many things, Erin, that I kind of want to, to discuss around this. But I guess what would be really fantastic as a start point is if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about the In Her Shoes movement for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it as a movement or as a space? Well, In Her Shoes Facebook page is what I started in early January 2018 as my way of securing just a a vote for myself because I didn't have a vote in Ireland in the referendum because I'm an American citizen, despite living in Ireland for, at that time, I had been living here for 12 years. So I didn't have a vote and it was a way for me, the page was started as a way for me to be active and involved in a campaign that I couldn't vote in. So the premise of the page is just for women to be able to tell their stories anonymously and safely in a space that allows people to take a walk in her shoes. 
So the page has anonymous stories paired up with a pair of just any pair of shoes. And that's all. It's very, very simple and very, very basic. But it became massive overnight, uh, an organic reaching of people, I think, at the height of it, towards the end of the campaign. Before the vote, there was over 4 million readers per week. And it was all done between myself and four other women. Most of us are mothers in our spare time of what spare time we had. Mm-hmm. So yeah, th- uh, hundreds and thousands of stories that were sent in of abortions that took place in Ireland and in Northern Ireland, illegal abortions or ones where they've had to travel outside of the country. What do you think attracted those four million readers? Because it sounds like there was such a need for this space, right? I don't know if you know what drew everyone to it. Well, so I feel like, especially for women and women's circles, that's something that I'm really passionate about, about talking about the things that we experience in these taboo subjects of, of our first periods, of abortion, miscarriage, pregnancies, birth, loss and menopause so we don't talk about these things and women really really do want to talk about them it's something that we would have talked about thousands of years ago when we lived together in more of a kind of a community base and now it's been taken away from us and it's been stripped away and so not only are women desperate and really hungry to tell their stories but people really want to listen because it's something that we don't get to hear about often or if we do we're just on the fringes of it We don't get to really, really know. And so because the stories were all different, very, very different and all very normal, I think people just really saw themselves in it, which is what I was hoping for and which is what I expected. I got the idea when I was standing on the streets talking with a man. It was one of our second stalls that I was involved with when we were doing information stalls in my town. And a man had approached and he was really, really kind of not happy with us being there. He kind of approached with such a full energy there, you know, really, really intimidating. And as I was talking to him, and I really, you know, normally you would pass people on, you just kind of try to get them to go away. But when I talked to him about experiences that I knew and the kind of healthcare that I thought as a person, as a compassionate, normal person would want for somebody else, when I started giving him ideas of what women were going through, he started to come around to it. And so I just knew if people had listened to these experiences then they would have that compassion and empathy for other people. The reason why I believe it had such a massive readership is because people were exposed to something that they didn't believe was happening here. And it was a massive secret. They knew it was happening, but they couldn't quite picture it, I suppose, that it was actually really happening to real normal people, that it wasn't just this idea of this slut that we have painted in our heads of the type of person who has an abortion. It was everybody. Mm Mm-hmm. And because they were anonymous and because the pictures, it was just so simple of just a pair of shoes that it could be. And it was your school teacher. It was your hairdresser. It was your neighbor. It was your cousin. And you didn't know that, but it kind of sounds like her. So, I mean, obviously people are curious about each other and we're nosy and we want to know these things. But I think there was more than just being nosy and desperate to know somebody's gossip. It was a lot of care. The page kind of really, really grew with a lot of a massive community feel to it. You mentioned that part of your desire in setting up the page was to secure a vote, you know, on your behalf. Do you think that you needed that kind of quote unquote outsider's perspective to realize, actually, we need to start sharing stories? Because I think sometimes the secrecy or the shame is so ingrained 
particularly in Catholic Ireland, that we do keep those things a secret. You see it in the mother and baby homes. You see it in abortion legislation. Did you need to be like, you know what? You guys don't have to live like this. (laughs) Let's talk about it. Do you know, I don't really think that I felt like you guys don't have to live like this. I Mm -hmm. felt like I had gone to birth gatherings, which are, or I had first been involved in breastfeeding groups Mm -hmm. and talking with Irish women who are extended breastfeeding, which is anything past six weeks. And that was a very taboo subject in Ireland. Women aren't breastfeeding. And when they are breastfeeding, it's very private. They're not doing it out in public. And it's something that, you know, it's just kind of kept at home. So that was one major way of talking about something that's taboo that women are experiencing, something that was normal for me and my choices in motherhood. And then being involved in birth gatherings where I wanted to give birth outside of the system, which was I wanted to have a home birth. I wanted something that was not, I suppose, what was normal in Ireland. I wanted something different. And that was hard to get. And realizing the legislations around that, the restrictions around it, and how much we don't have choices for ourselves so going to birth gatherings where it's you know just a circle of women mothers getting together families talking about our experiences in the hospitals talking about our experiences as parents what we want or what we want to improve in maternity services it was just normal for me to talk about these things and also I had a miscarriage myself and it was normal for me to talk about my miscarriage to write about it to express it publicly and I know that it's not just an Irish thing and a Catholic thing to not talk about your miscarriage. It's around the world that people just don't, you know, it's very, very, you know, in America, you just don't like, you don't tell anybody you're pregnant until you're 12 weeks. Same as here. And I find that really isolating infertility issues are really, really isolating and depressing and really shit that you, people aren't talking about them. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't necessarily that it was a Catholic thing. It wasn't an outsider thing saying, you guys, we need you talking about this, like as if people in America are talking about their abortions, because they're not, (laughs) you know, you know, like I know that my friends all had abortions and stuff, but it's not something that has to be talked about, I suppose, or necessarily that there's a space to talk about it. It just Mm -hmm. happens. Yeah. So I definitely don't think from the outsider perspective, it wasn't like you guys need to wake up and see there's something wrong here. It was more like, I live here and this is my country too. And I have two daughters and I want something better for myself and for them. And this is not fair for me and my friends and these other women who are suffering in the hospital. I want everything to be better for all of us and not just abortion rights, but our maternity rights as well. That's an important point about sort of the shame and the silence being way bigger than just sort of Irish Catholic culture. Because if you think about like African culture, people hide their pregnancies until like eight months (laughs) you know and then when people ask you oh what's your due date you're not allowed to say Mm. because anything can happen hearing you say it makes me realize how often women issues are just not discussed yeah but if you just take that all back to being a child being prepubescent and what we learned in sex education in schools whether we had sex education in our school or we didn't, we learned about like the side diagram of what our uterus looks like, but we didn't learn that we could only actually get pregnant one time during the month. That like, It was this small little window. We didn't actually learn these very empowering things about how our bodies work and about eggs being released and, and being able to know what our fertility was like and if we were actually healthy. So then When you become an adult and you decide, do I want to have a baby or do I not, to have the power to be able to decide, 
to know your cycle, to know if you're fertile, to know do you need help or whatever, or if you want to get pregnant or to avoid pregnancy, that we're, we're already stifling that empowerment in young girls to know that about their bodies. It starts at such a young age. And then I suppose that because we're not talking about these things as openly, and now it's such a like celebrated, like, oh, storytelling, you know, we're talking about these things. And it's kind of like these magazines have it as a big issue. Like, here's the women's issue. Here's the special section where you guys can talk about women's issues. These are like issues that involve our partners, our children, our support systems, our work. And there's so many layers to it. So yeah, so like the secrecy, the shame, and like you're saying in African cultures of not talking about their pregnancies or or when they're supposed to have their baby, if something happened to the baby, if they had a stillbirth, is it something that they talk about? Is that baby acknowledged? Because it certainly wasn't in Ireland up until very recently. It's hard as well, because there's a couple of things off the back of what you've just said there, because I also think that when we're talking about that, you can't argue that also our sex education is always centered around male pleasure as a default. And obviously, the argument can be made that, oh, yeah, well, that's obviously because we're looking at it from a reproductive standpoint. But the fact that you teach so little about that from an anatomical perspective to women as well is, again, it's almost like taking a step back on what you've said there. I kind of see that for the first time in a whole different light. It's just not something we talk about. It's not something that we teach. This is a name that then will be probably more familiar to our Irish listeners. But you and Savita Alabanavar were pregnant at the same time. And you kind of touch on in the book that you kind of became aware of how the Eighth Amendment also affected, you know, wanted pregnancies as well as abortions. And I think that that was, even for myself, that was a learning curve to know that the Eighth Amendment was kind of referred to as the abortion amendment almost. And there were so many gray areas within that where you found out that expectant mothers were also, you know, fundamentally unprotected. And I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit more for our listeners and what that journey felt like for you learning more about that. Well, as Ireland isn't my home country and being involved in birth gatherings, it was something that I was made aware of is that migrant women and women of colour are disproportionately mistreated within our medical and maternity system, which is not different anywhere else in America, in England and Ireland, where women of colour and migrant women are not given the same treatment as white women are. And because I'm American and because I'm white, I intended to receive decent treatment. I was 20 weeks pregnant at Savita's first vigil in Galway. And looking at this picture of a woman who was a few years older than me and my own baby was moving within me and being aware that there's nothing to stop that from being me. This was a woman who made Ireland her home country then. She moved here with her husband and they were creating their life here and there was nothing to stop that from being me. And I think most of us felt that way. The reality that this could be any of us At that time as well, maternal deaths, there was not an inquiry into maternal deaths at that time. It wasn't legal. The state would not automatically investigate into their death. So the only reason why we knew about Savita is because of her husband being strong enough to come forward and find somebody else to bring it to. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who's not Irish, who doesn't have his home and his family here, 
and he's having to beg Irish people to look into what's happened to his wife because he knows it's not right. And she was a doctor. She knew it wasn't right. And so something so preventative could have been done and the story would be entirely different. We wouldn't know it. We wouldn't know her name. You know, it wouldn't be an issue with that. So it's felt so personal. And I don't want to take away either of what it's like for other women to put on. I'm aware of the racism within our maternity system and our healthcare system. And so when I'm talking about Savita and I'm talking about my experience too, I don't want to overshadow or make it out as if, you know, she's been used as a, as this poster Mm -hmm. child for it. And it's awful too. So becoming aware of the law at that time, then before I knew that we didn't have abortion in Ireland, it was a Catholic country, you know, quote, we weren't talking about abortion in uh, 2006 when I first moved to Ireland when I was 19 and we had the Lisbon Treaty. Abortion was not a word that you could really say here. And so nobody really knew what the Eighth Amendment really, really was. They knew it was about abortion. But finding out after Savita that it meant that it impacted our continued pregnancy. So obviously miscarriage management, but also meant that we didn't have the right to consent or not consent to procedures in our pregnancies and birth. So there was a woman who was brought to court to be forced to have a cesarean section against her wishes. So even knowing that if I said to my consultant, I don't want my waters broken, or I want to have a home birth, or I don't want an episiotomy, and they say they're going to do it anyway, they can, because you don't have the rights. So the moment you're pregnant, you no longer have any rights. And so making people aware of that, I think, really opened their minds that it wasn't an abortion referendum. It was our rights to govern ourselves in making decisions for our health. Because pregnancy is not generally a medical emergency. It's not a a health crisis. It's normal. And so are abortions. I think abortion is such an emotionally charged topic. But like you're saying, when we think about women's reproductive rights, we think about contraception. It's such a bigger, broader issue. I'd love both of your points of view on this. Like I feel like the media or like the right wing weaponize abortion and then it becomes everyone is so emotionally charged right and they're focusing on that while basically all of your rights are taken away you know so even women who are pro-life will focus on the fact that they're pro-life but then ignore the fact that this is such a bigger conversation miscarriage comes into this contraception comes into this it's not just about abortion It's really about, like you said, having the agency to make your own choices. How can you get pregnant and then you just become a vessel of a a ship that's here to deliver a baby? Yeah. When pregnancy and birth became so medicalized, we became even further removed from ourselves. When we look at history, we became more and more removed from our bodies because, you know, you're saying like abortion is a, a term that's weaponized you know our bodies and our blood is weaponized against us we're not able to see tampon commercials did you know that our tampon commercial I don't know if it was banned in the UK but it was in Ireland yeah no it wasn't but it would be great to to hear you touch on that because it is so true and it's very emblematic of our attitude towards women um essentially for our non-Irish listeners a tampon commercial had 85 complaints or something like that because of the crude language used and it ended up being pulled from Irish television because we just don't want to talk about women's bodies. We don't want to talk about the grotesque 
aspect of vaginas and uterus and periods and anything that isn't specifically focused on sexual pleasure. And I don't think that's specific to Ireland. I think that we have an issue with the absolute hypersexualization of women's bodies, particularly in the case of women of color, they are hypersexualized. We do it to young women, we do it to teenagers. We have a complete lack of ability to talk about women's bodies with any kind of autonomy of self. Julia, you had mentioned, though, weaponizing our bodies, that the alt-right and these pro-life groups are using abortion as a a thing against us or, or making us into witches, using our blood against us. Women around the world or people who have a uterus around the world bleed once a month. And our blood is not something that is scary to us. It's something that we become very, very familiar with from a young age. And when we're talking about our sexual health and when we're having miscarriages and when we're having an abortion, it's not something that has to be scary or weaponized against us. But because it has in such a medical context been used by men against us, blood becomes a thing that we no longer can see unless if it's for a gory film for men. So when we're talking about tampons and pad advertisements, we're getting our blue liquid because we're dainty women. And when we're having a miscarriage, you know, we're not going to see any pictures of what it actually looks like for a woman to have a miscarriage. When we're seeing a woman who, you know, a depiction of a woman in a movie who's having an abortion or miscarriage or is given birth, we're not going to see her blood. We're not going to see the life and the great that we as women who bleed, know and understand in a very intimate way that we're not disgusted by ourselves in that way. But from the outside perspective, we're made to. Yeah, but it's interesting you say that, Erin, because when the whole, you know, Chrissy Teigen had her miscarriage recently and, um, you know, and the pictures, or there were some pictures that, you know, her and her husband decided to put online. And I was very freaked out by this. And I was saying to Phoebe, why are they putting these pictures up online? So, like, sometimes it's really hard for people to think, how can a woman be against women being able to make their own choices? How can a woman be against women having reproductive rights? But even as a woman, I'm just so not used to seeing that. And there was really nothing in the picture apart from them being on, you know, on the bed. And it was a really tragic scene because of all the emotion in the picture. So there was no blood. It wasn't particularly gory in that sense. And that's just freaking me out. Right. And so that's just it. Is that this is a taboo thing of having a miscarriage of grief, of this intimacy. And it's something that we're not sharing. So mm. these are stories that we're not talking about. And so being able to see it for other people, that could be a normal experience for them to see. So for somebody who's had a miscarriage or who's had a stillbirth, seeing that picture is something that they recognize themselves in whether they would share it online or share it publicly or not is different but that's also where in our societies how we deal with grief and how we deal with ugly things that happen to us something that's not pinterest worthy and it's not going to look nice on our instagram feed but this is real life and it's raw and gritty and fucking beautiful and painful and real and so That is where the storytelling comes into it, that we have these stories to tell, that women are experiencing these and they don't want to do it in private anymore. They don't want to keep it just to themselves. They want to reach out and connect with other women online. And if that's by doing it through a picture on Instagram or if it's through telling their story anonymously in a place that feels safe to them, 
there's so much power in it because there's other people reaching out to connect to say, I had that experience too. Or, you know, with my own miscarriage, I had shared very, very publicly the ceremonies I was having for myself, what I was giving to myself and my body and this fetus of what I was doing to help me to cope with this physically, emotionally. And sharing that online, my sister-in-law realized that her miscarriage, that she didn't know what to do when she had her miscarriage before me, this little fetus and blood clots was there. And then she looked at it and then didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so threw it away because nobody's telling you what to do. Nobody's giving you an option. Nobody's telling you what's going to happen to you when you're having a miscarriage at home and when you're having an abortion at home. It's the same thing. And what do you want to do? Nobody's going to give you that space to talk about you have choices. There are different ways to move through these processes and it doesn't have to be, Oh, well quickly, this is blood and get rid of it. It could be, let's see what's going on with my body. Let's see what Mm -hmm. I created or, or what I am releasing or whatever, you know, there is so much power in talking about it because it is taboo. And when we talk about taboo things, we remove that stigma and that shame from it and that secrecy. And because that is all placed on women and there's nothing shameful about infertility, menstruation, abortion, miscarriage, stillbirth. There's no shame in it. And it's all of our experiences that we will either, if we haven't had, we will most likely experience at some point. I find the whole topic incredibly emotive. And I find, you know, I certainly felt that during the the peak of the In Her Shoes Facebook group, you know, I would frequently share the posts appearing on the page. And it really, it helped me to foster a dialogue with people in my life that I might not have otherwise been able to. I could talk to my friends about abortion and I could talk to my friends about the lack of available abortion. I could talk about the difficulty in affording contraception. I was on the pill for a lot longer than I wanted to be on the pill because I couldn't afford to be on anything else because under Irish healthcare, you pay for your own contraception. So when I moved back to London and I got the coil put in, I remember saying like at the front desk, oh, how much is that? They were like, no, it's it's free. It's free on the NHS. And I was going, oh, yeah, yeah, no, of course. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, having paid 150 euro to get the implant put in three years previously. So I think that speaks to the broader issue with access to contraception as well. But I know that for myself and my girlfriends, the lack of availability was a shadow that hung over you. And you didn't talk about sexual health, sexual pleasure, you know, even going to an SDI clinic was like something shameful, as opposed to just something that you should do if you are sexually active, full stop. And so I feel so grateful to the the In Her Shoes page for that, for, for helping create dialogue with my mum, for example, about something that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to talk about. But some of those stories and some of the the ones that impacted me most actually feature in the book. And I think about those women all the time. And it's incredible to me that they don't know how much I think about them. And I remember as well, you know, when fundraising started, you know, for donations for people to travel home to vote in the referendum. I remember reading the comments of one woman who donated. I might actually have to stop because I can feel myself getting emotional. But she had said that she had self-aborted and had taken 
out-of-date pills, not even abortion pills. It was some kind of kidney medication or something like that that she had taken and had caused herself kidney failure. She had miscarried in the end, but she had also caused herself kidney failure, which was still ongoing. And she wrote in the comment, you know, maybe this is my penance. And I just, I remember thinking, you know, what a stain on us that we have caused, excuse me, that we have caused so many women to feel like that. And I wonder how you felt. I felt that way reading those stories. And I remember those women. I remember the woman who had a child with special needs and was cast out by her family. And her family, you know, her mother and father never really spoke to her again. And her siblings then ended up getting tested and finding out that there was a genetic component and none of them ended up having children. And I wonder, I, I wonder about the toll that that took on you. Because I sit here, like, two years later, I'm, I'm upset thinking about these women. and I'm, I love them, <laughs> even though they don't know who I am and I don't know who they are. And I wonder what that felt like for you reading those in a very unfiltered sense. Oh, uh, well, first, it was such a privilege, such an immense privilege to have these women sending me their stories. They didn't know who I was. I was anonymous. They didn't know what was going to happen with their stories. They were sending them in the faith that they would be taken care of and respected. So it was an incredible honor to receive them. There were multiple stories, not just multiple. There were so many of them that would leave me shaking, having to step away from my phone and from the computer and just sit there trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. When I would receive a story and when I had admin as well, then I had other people then helping me because then it was too overwhelming. It was so much. So we were able to talk to each other about like, oh, did you just see this story? Like, what do we do about this? So it wasn't just a woman sent their story or a person sent their story and that went up. It was they sent their story and there was a conversation with them, which was even more difficult, I suppose, because we were investing ourselves emotionally into this dialogue with another person because I didn't want them to send something so personal out into the void and hear nothing back. And some people didn't hear anything back because it, there were so many. But I wanted them to meet that with a personal response of a person there holding them and meeting them where they are. So that meant that if there was a person who was sending me a story that were actually in a moment where they actually needed maybe counseling, or maybe they were in uh, suffering with domestic violence, or maybe they needed an abortion still, or whatever the case was, then we were still having that dialogue and talking with them. Or if they had lost a baby to a fatal anomaly, being able to respond back to them and talk to them about their son or their daughter by name. And so there was an extra emotional toll uh, and emotional labor in not just reading the stories in this like way and then like copy and paste it over, but actually really fully engaging and being with that woman. I, at the time, was grieving my mother and mothering three kids. And so at the time, I was avoiding my own grief in order to do this. It felt like the, the best thing I could do. And this is something that people do when they're experiencing trauma. They take on other people's trauma. It's incredibly unhealthy and not advisable. But it was the least I could do. 
And listening to those stories and reading those stories every single day was the least I could do because I wasn't traveling and somebody was. And if I was reading that story and I was going to post it online, then I could do something. It was the only way it felt powerful, emotive, uh, like a real connection with somebody that felt like we could actually make active change with. And as you said, it allowed for you to have the conversations with people in an easier way, especially like your mother or maybe cousins or anybody or co-workers is that it allowed people here to have the conversations where you're not bringing up how do you feel about this referendum or about abortion. It wasn't ha- didn't have to be polarizing. It was, did you read that story last night? Oh my God, the poor girl. Like, how could this be happening here? And then these whole worlds of conversations coming out of, especially from older generations in Ireland, who knew these things, who experienced these things and didn't have the words for it or had put them to bed long ago. People got the boat. You know, it was happening to their sisters. It was happening to their mother. Those stories were met at a multi-generational level because it relates to all of us. It was across the board. Men and women could understand them because we all love somebody who's had an abortion. Reading the stories gave me more of a fight and fire to do something for myself and for my daughters because I didn't have a vote. And I didn't know... I didn't think that your vote has that much influence. I didn't think that my vote would ever have that much of an impact until I couldn't vote for something so important because it was about me and about my rights and about my daughter's rights. So the fact that I didn't have a voice in that really pissed me off. Even if I voted and nobody was ever going to count my vote, they were just going to throw it away. I still had to fucking vote for it because it was my life and it was my daughter's and it's these women around me. So each story was more and more power of, we have to do something. You know, my husband would look at me and I'd be there, you know, every night I would have to like decompress with him and be crying about some of these stories that we were reading. And he just said, you know, I know this is really hard, but this is very important. Like, you know, he could start to see more and more and more, not of a value of women having to pour themselves and to pour their hearts out to people, but the value of what impact it was making on those people telling their stories And then also people reading it. It was hard, but it was so important. And so it was more important to just push through. And I suppose we also had an end date. It was only a few months before the referendum that we actually got that date. So there was kind of this way for myself and the other admin to really take on as much of this trauma because we felt like, okay, well, we can just keep going. I mean, all of us during repeal in Ireland, everybody was doing everything. We were giving everything because we knew like, okay, we just have to get to that last hurdle, that last line. We just have to get to this vote, you know? And for me, I also felt like if we got to that vote and it didn't pass, the stories that were shared on Inner Shoes, but not the stories and the conversations and the comments, the whole community that it built had massively impacted our society and changed something. So even if we didn't win that referendum, something already had happened with our communities. You know, we were having these conversations with so much more compassion for each other and consideration for what we have experienced. I think the point you make around having the conversation with more compassion is so important because I just find abortion to be such a brutal conversation like all the time. Like you said, it is so polarizing. And, you know, I accept that people have different perspectives, right? But I think that you never know what someone has been through. That was a reason why I felt like this project, when I started it, 
obviously I, when I started, I never thought that it would become what it did. But the reason why I felt like it would work was because the way that Irish people are, I don't know if it would have had the same impact in America because I, I've always felt like Irish people, they don't want something bad to happen to somebody in their community. If something is unfair to somebody else in their community, like, like, you know, we didn't have gay marriage legalized until recently, but the way the Irish people were, especially older generations would be like, that person is gay. I'm sure that he's great though. Isn't he lovely? And so that person is allowed to be gay and they love that. They're like, they're totally, they don't care who that person loves. They totally support that person because that person is part of their community. And Irish people, I mean, I feel like maybe things have kind of changed not in the best of ways, sometimes in recent ways now, maybe since we have more money in the country. But before it was, people were really together and people were with each other against the government, you know, like, no, like we're in this together. I mean, I'm in the West of Ireland out rurally. So I suppose there's more of that community feel as well where people are looking out for each other and they're smaller towns and people really, really care about each other, it feels. So it felt like if they had that conversation and we were having that conversation, they would recognize that this is happening around us. And Ireland is so small. So we all know each other, really. You know, you find somebody who knows somebody else, we all know each other. And I don't know if it would have translated the same in America where the mentality is not a socialist, everybody with each other, you know, we care about each other in community. It's each man for himself. So I, you know, I don't know the conversation, I suppose, would have to be different in different places, really, as well, or the way that it's created the conversations that maybe somebody would read it and not care because of their societal conditioning, I suppose. And I could honestly stay and chat to you all night. But I really feel from an Irish woman, I just, I actually feel so grateful for you. I really, truly mean it when I say that I don't think that we would have repealed had it not been for the In Her Shoes movement. And I feel that in in a way that I know it. I know it to be true. And so thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing so much for yourself with us in the book and this evening. But also just thank you for what you have done for for so many Irish people, so many Irish women. Yeah, I have to leave it there. I'm so grateful for you as well. Like this has been for me, like such an eye-opening conversation. And how can our like listeners find you? Where are you hanging out online? Well, they can find me on Instagram, Design, and they can buy my book anywhere online in her shoes, Women with the Eight. Yeah, I'm mostly on Instagram. And I do have to say as a as an add-on there, as well as everything else, Erin actually is a really phenomenal artist. Some of the pieces that you've put together are so gorgeous. So even though that has nothing to do with the topic at hand, I did just want to give you a shout out in that regard. I did illustrate the book and I, I really hope that the illustrations helped to not just soften the book and how hard it is to read, but to give it a feeling of home and belonging and really kind of add the importance to these stories and really give them a soft home to belong for a while. So hopefully that that translates that way. I definitely think it did. And we'll be sharing the link to Erin's book. So Erin Darcy, find her on Instagram. And just thank you so much, Erin. Share the podcast with a friend, guys. And let us know like your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. 